Well, that was fabulous, wasn't it? That was fabulous, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Amen, right. Wow, thank you. Thought you'd all died for a minute. Well, we want to prepare our hearts for the table. And uh, we're going to consider one of three great words in the Bible which explain to us what the cross is all about. There are three great words in the Bible, propitiation, uh, redemption, and reconciliation. And this morning we want to think about the first of those words, the word reconciliation, uh, sorry, the word propitiation. Propitiation means averting God's anger by an offering. Averting God's anger by an offering. In your bulletins, you will have seen a somewhat expanded definition by the great Professor John Murray, one of the great Presbyterian theologians of the 20th century. And he said this, The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he, by his blood, made provision, uh, sorry, he, by the blood of his Son, made provision for the removal of his wrath. That's tremendous. The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he sent his son by whose blood he made provision for the removal of his own wrath. That's what propitiation means. Now, clearly, what is presupposed is that God is a God of wrath. God's wrath can be defined in this way. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. And that holy revulsion issues in a positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. Now, The concept of wrath is a biblical concept. The wrath of God is mentioned over 500 times in the Old Testament alone. It is clearly at the heart of the New Testament teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. If you're not a Christian, well, you look outside and you think this is a beautiful day. It's not a beautiful day for you if you're not a Christian. You might have gotten up today and had a good breakfast and you enjoyed the drive here. But if you're not a Christian, it's not a great day. Perhaps you're watching in the comfort of your own home. Surrounded by the blessings that God has poured out upon you. But it's not a good day for you because the wrath of God, the Bible says, abides over you. And should you die today you will go straight to hell. People don't like to think about the wrath of God, and even those who profess the name of Jesus don't like to think about the wrath of God, and and those who profess the name of Jesus to their shame and in contradiction of their statements of faith, they do these kinds of things. The Presbyterian Church USA, there was a committee, they wanted to add... The hymn we sing, In Christ Alone. 
They wanted to add it to their denominational hymnal called Glory to God. That's the name of the hymnal. But uh, they didn't like some of the language of In Christ Alone, and so they wanted to alter it. They wanted to change this line where it says, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. No, didn't like that. Didn't like wrath. And didn't like the notion of that wrath being satisfied by Jesus. So they asked uh, Mr. Getty and Mr. Townend if they could change it to this. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And to their credit, Mr. Getty and Mr. Townend said, um, no. What we've written, we have written. It's biblical. So... um, The Presbyterian Church USA Committee removed the song from their hymn book. With deep regret, they said, they said the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger would have a negative impact on the worshiper's education. Well, they are wrong. The doctrine of propitiation is a biblical doctrine. And it has to do with averting God's anger by the offering that Christ provides. And this is at the heart of the gospel. And Dr. Packer in his book, Knowing God, has a chapter on propitiation. And he rightly entitles the chapter, The Heart of the Gospel. That's what we want to think about this morning. And when we think about it, and as we consider it, and look and try and understand what the Bible means by propitiation, we'll see, number one, the wisdom of God's plan. Number two, the wideness of God's mercy. And number three, the wonder of God's love. Hope that's what we'll see. So first of all, the wisdom of God's plan. You see, the question is, How can God save sinners? How can God accomplish the salvation of your soul? How can God take you, you're a condemned sinner, how can God take you to his heaven where only righteousness can be countenanced? How can that be accomplished? Proverbs 17 verse 15 says this, He who justifies the wicked And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, to justify means to declare not guilty. So a judge says, you are not guilty. means he's justifying you. He's declaring you not guilty. And if you look at an unbelief, if you look at someone who was accused of, of a crime, and he really is guilty of the crime, and the judge says, You are justified. I declare you not guilty. That's a travesty of justice. And that's what Proverbs 17.15 is talking about. To justify the ungodly. To say to the guilty, you're not guilty, is a travesty of justice. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. 
So how can God say to you, not guilty, when in fact you are guilty? Because God said you're guilty. How can that be? How can that be accomplished? But that's precisely what God wants to do. God wants to say to you, because he loves you and he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. He wants to say to you, you're not guilty and I'm going to take you to my heaven. So how does he do it? Well, propitiation is the answer to that. Propitiation is the answer to that dilemma. Propitiation is a word found only four times in the New Testament. The first time is the one that we read earlier, Romans chapter 3, and verses 21 down to verse 31. And it's in that section that we see the word propitiation. Let me read from verse 21 again, this time down to verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem, you see. And they then are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we know the word forensic. You watch television, you know, they talk about forensic science and so on and so forth. Forensic is that which has to do with the courts of law. It has to do with courts and justice and so on and so forth. Well, justification is a forensic term. Justification has to do with your legal status before God. Your legal standing before the judge of all the earth. And justification has to do with that legal standing that you, as a sinner, have before the holy God of all the universe. And to justify means that the accused is declared not guilty. Now, you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, you see the same kind of thing. Paul says, therefore, uh, says in Romans 8, 1, therefore, having been justified by grace, uh, there is no condemnation for us. No condemnation for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 1. And then Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who can condemn. Now the question is, how can that be possible? How can God say to you, you're not guilty when in fact you are? Well, again, as I say, it has to do with propitiation. In Romans 1, verse 18, right down to Romans 3, verse 20, Paul is emphasizing that everybody in the world, everybody who's existed, the Lord Jesus, the sole exception, is guilty before God. Jew and Gentile, and so that encompasses the whole of humanity, everybody is guilty before God. This comes to a a culmination in verse 19 of chapter 3, where Paul says, And all the world, Jew and Gentile, may become guilty before God. And so for God to say to them, 
you're not guilty is an abomination in the sight of God. A seemingly insurmountable problem. But God has the answer. And God has provided the answer. It's in the work of propitiation accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Because you see, if propitiation is happening on the cross, then the requirements of justice are met. If propitiation is happening at the cross, and it is, then all sin is punished. And justice is met. The sins of unbelievers are punished in hell as they suffer. The sins of believers are punished on the cross as Jesus suffers. And that's why God can be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Because sin is punished in hell or on the cross. And for those who believe in Jesus, their sin is punished. For their wrath is poured out upon the Savior. So, what I'm saying is that this is extraordinary. This is astonishing. And the first thing we see then is just the wisdom of God's plan. How could this be? Well, God has the answer. It's propitiation. Secondly, the wideness of God's grace. The wideness of God's grace. Who does the Lord Jesus do this for? Well, he he does this for those who believe in Jesus. And that is a massive category. Those who believe in Jesus. That's a multitude that no man can number. The second place where we find this word propitiation, the second verse I'll point out to you is in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And we read this. My little children, says John, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, any, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The wideness of God's grace. The question is, what does the word world mean in verse 2? Does it mean everyone who has ever existed? Everyone who's ever walked the face of the earth? Or is there some restriction to the word world in verse 2? Well, if it means everyone who's ever existed... And then nobody goes to hell. If it means everyone who's ever existed, that means then that Jesus has paid the price and borne the wrath for everybody who's ever existed. So nobody can be condemned and nobody goes to hell. But then you have a problem with what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, which is that there will be those who will go to everlasting punishment. So it can't mean that. What does it mean? Well, it means that people all over the world, people from every part of the world, people, not just the Jews, but people who are Gentiles, people from every tongue and tribe and nation in the world, 
they'll be saved. And Jesus has provided propitiation for all kinds of people all over the world. And you see, this is what God all along had promised. You go back to the promise in Genesis chapter 12. God says clearly there through the seed of Abraham, he's going to bless all the nations of the world. Not every single individual is going to be saved, but from all the nations of the world, God will save a people. That is affirmed in the passage that we read earlier in Romans chapter 3, especially verse 29, where it says that God is not the God just of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles as well. Well, thank God for that, because we're, we're Gentiles, you and I. So Paul affirms that in Romans 3. This becomes reality in the book of Acts. Because now the Jews are saved. Look at chapters 1 and 2 of Acts. But then you move over to, to chapter 9 and 10. And you see everything begins to expand now. It's been going along a very restricted course for a long time. And now in the book of Acts, things just explode and now the Gentiles, as prophesied in Isaiah frequently, now they start streaming to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's Cornelius. And then things begin to explode. And the word of God, Paul says, runs rampant throughout the empire. And the Gentiles now come to Christ. And near the latter parts of, of the book of Acts, now the Gentiles are even helping the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Absolutely astounding. And then, in Revelation, we find that the promise that God gave at the beginning is fulfilled. As John is given a glimpse of the end, and he says in Revelation chapter 5, that God has redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And there you see then the wideness of God's grace. It is grace that is open to everybody. Whosoever will may come. And God by his grace makes men willing in the day of his power. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, Come to the waters, whoever is thirsty. That's the gospel we take to the world. That's what we say to them. We say, whoever is thirsty, come and drink. He is the fountain of living waters. The Lord Jesus Christ, come and drink. And your thirst will be quenched. If you're not a Christian, that's all we're saying to you. This is living bread. This will, this will meet your need. This will feed your soul. He's the living water. He'll quench that, that unquenchable thirst you have. You've tasted the brackish water of the world, haven't you? It hasn't quenched your thirst one whit. He will. You need to drink. The wideness of God's mercy. Now thirdly, the wonder of God's love. And we see very clearly the wisdom of God's plan. It's absolutely astonishing that he should, he should plan that his son would be propitiation for us. And we see the wideness of his grace. He, he offers this salvation to whoever will believe in Jesus. From every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. He offers it to you. 
doesn't even just offer it. He commands you to believe. It's not an option for you today. He commands you. He urges you. He pleads with you. He calls you. He invites you. Believe. The wide, wide grace of God. And lastly, the wonder of God's love. There are wonder, the wonder of God's love. There are two other places that we find this, uh, this word propitiation. Uh, the first one I'll mention is 1 John 4.10, which began our service. 1 John 4.10, <clears throat> where the Apostle John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did God the Father send God the Son to be the propitiation for our sins? Why did he do that? Because he loved us. Because he loved sinners like us. I read a book years ago. I recommended it to... Some of you remember me recommending it. It's a book called The Messengers of Ethiopia. It talks about God's great work of salvation and revival and awakening in Ethiopia in the middle part of the 20th century. And there's a story there where a believer is unjustly found guilty of a crime and he has two options before him. He can... He can pay a fine, which he was well able to, or he could go to prison. And you read the story and you find yourself astonished with the fact that, that he chose to go to prison. And you say, well, now why did he not choose to pay the fine and be spared what must have been a horrific experience in a, a, an Ethiopian prison? But he went to prison for this reason, because he was a Christian and he wanted to be a witness to those who were in prison. You say, well, no, that's amazing. And, and the, it is amazing because it's a, a tremendous demonstration of Christian love. But every demonstration of Christian love that kind of takes your breath away when you read about it, every single one just disappears into oblivion when you compare it with the cross. Because you see... God's love is such that he did two things. First, he sent his son to become one of us. He sent his son to become one of us. That's absolutely astounding. The last place that you find this word propitiation is in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to be like us. He had to be one of us so that he could make propitiation for us. So God sent Jesus into the world so that he could be our sacrifice, so that he could be one of us and bear the wrath that we deserve. That's an example, that's the astonishing aspect of God's love. You, you may remember a man by the name of Gianni Versace. Okay. So Versace was, was murdered some years ago, but before he was murdered, he was asked about his religious views, and he said this. He said, well, I believe in God, but I'm not the kind of religious person who goes to church. 
who believes in the fairy tale of Jesus born in a stable with the donkeys? That, uh, no, I'm not that stupid. I can't believe that God, with all the power he has, had to have himself born in a stable. It wouldn't have been comfortable. Now, at first you think, oh, that's just really stupid. But it's not, you know. The Lord Jesus left the glory and splendor of heaven to be born in a place where animals live, where you would never permit your child to be born. And so when he says, I can't can't believe that, that's crazy, he's right. It is absolutely astonishing. It boggles the mind. It's jaw-dropping. It's it's unbelievable. Don't ever take this for granted that Jesus became a man. That's crazy. But it's true. But it's still astonishing. And he did it because he loved you. That's the wonder of his love. That God the Father sent his son. Now he loves his son. He's always loved his son. This is his only begotten. This is the son like no other. You're a son and you're a daughter. But there's no one else like this Jesus. He's the only begotten. He's the one and only. Nobody else like him. The Father loves him. The Father sent him. I mean of all people. Send an angel. Send Gabriel. Send Michael, but not the son. But he sends the son. Sends his son. My son in whom I am well pleased. Never defied me. Never displeased me. I'm going to send him to, to rescue them. The rebels. The vile. I'll send my son. It's astonishing. John says, that's how much he loves you. Here in his love. Not that we loved him because we didn't. He loved us and sent his son. Amazing. He sent his son to become one of us. And he, and he sent his son to save us. To suffer for us. To die for us. To taste hell for us. He wasn't going to taste prison. He wasn't like that Christian going to go into a prison cell in Ethiopia. No, he was going to suffer the pangs of death. He was going to have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was going to be forsaken of God. He was going to experience hell for you. And the father knew that. And the son knew that. That's why this is so astonishing. Because he loved you. The Father sent the Son to suffer forsakenness so that you might not be forsaken. A propitiation. So you see the, the wisdom of God's plan and the, oh, the wideness of his, of his grace and the astonishing wonder of his love.
I'll give you two implications. The first is that we're secure. We're secure. I read to you from Augustus Top Lady. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not God, uh, hath not the Father put to grief the spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged to thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place? if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood. Now listen especially to this. If thou my discharge procure, if thou hast my discharge procured, and freely in my room endured the wrath, the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again. At mine. I'm saying to you, if you're a Christian covered by the blood, you are secure. Think about the day that you sin. You've sinned today. I have no doubt of that. I have. And when you sin, what do you do? Well, you come to God, don't you? You confess your sin. You're convicted. And, and, and you feel that mourning that Jesus says is part and parcel of who you are as a Christian. And, and you come to God and you confess your sin and you ask him to forgive you. And top lady is saying, God cannot but forgive you. If you come in penitence and ask the Lord's forgiveness, God has to forgive you. That's what First John says. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just. Yes, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It would be unjust for God to punish you for your sin. It would be unjust of God to punish you for your sin. Why? Because he's already punished Christ. God cannot twice Demand payment. First at my bleeding surety's end, and then again at mine. He can't pour out the hell you deserve on Jesus, and then again on you. He can't do it. He would be unjust. You're secure then. So when you come day by day and confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you. Now think about the last day when you stand before God. Are you secure then? Bold shall I stand in that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. So Zinzendorf says, you know, top lady's right. I can look forward to that day and know that I can stand there bold. I'm not going to stand there quivering. I'm not going to stand there wondering, biting my nails. Am I going to go to hell or will I somehow sneak in? No, no, I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure. Because God cannot twice demand payment. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. So yes, bold shall I stand in that great day. For who ought? I mean, who in heaven and on earth is going to lay any charge against me? Now, if you say that, you're either crazy, 
you don't know how wicked you are, or you're a Christian. I suppose you can be a Christian a little crazy too, but, but oh, how wonderful to be a Christian. So yes, we're secure. You're okay. <laughs> Second thing is we're loved. We're loved. Well, we all struggle with this, I think. And sometimes perhaps we think, perhaps we have kind of a jaundiced view of God and we think, well, God's out to get us, you know. And when bad things happen, it's like, oh, well, it's payment due. Uh, the, the other shoe finally dropped. My sins caught up with me. But the extraordinary thing about this whole propitiation concept and reality is that the father who was angry is the father who loved those upon whom his anger rested. He loved them so much that he sent his son to save those upon whom his wrath was resting. His love rested upon these people and he provided for the appeasement of his own wrath because he loved them so much. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die in the hopes that somehow he will make God love us. Oh, a thousand times, no. The Father loved us so much that he sent his Son to deal with this legal issue that we had. To deal with this this problem that we had where we were criminals in the courts of God's justice and God had to deal with justice so that he could be just and the justifier of the ones who believe in Jesus so he could take us to his heaven. God loves us. And that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why you can know today, because you look at the cross, you know today that God loves you. You don't say, well, God loves me because, you know, when I go to church... I feel good. I just get all warm and fuzzy. The Christians, they look and they smile. They dress so nice. It's all great. That's not how you... You can go to a... You know, you can go to an AA meeting and feel just at home and cuddly and warm and everybody loves me and we're all... No, no, no. You know you are loved of God because you gaze upon the cross. You just see Christ dying for you. That's how you know you're loved. And a God who loves you like that, a God who provides propitiation, oh, he'll provide everything else for you. So yeah, you're, you're loved. This God has taken care of his wrath. He'll take care of everything else. Your father loves you. And, and nothing that happens in your life comes to you with any other motivation than that God loves you. Every detail of your life is an expression of God's love for you. Yeah, every detail of your life is an expression of God's love for you. The things that you think, well, that's a good thing. I like that detail. Well, God loves me. He 
You look at something else, you say, oh, I don't like that. That's a bad detail. You can look at that and say, well, God loves me. He loves me enough to send that. He loves me enough to, to bring that as a discipline or a correction or a means by which I will grow. Everything that happens to you is an expression of God's love. So yeah, you're, you're secure and you're loved. Whatever your circumstances, you're in a great place. Now maybe you're not a Christian, you say, well, this is just unbelievable. And I, again, I, I, I understand that. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? It it is just. It's just astonishing. What astonishing mercy and grace! It's astounding. It's unbelievable. And it's also true. And astonishingly, that God invites you now to believe in Him. He invites you to trust Christ so that you can be saved as well. So that you can be forgiven as well. So that you can join this band of believers who are on their way to heaven. Because Jesus paid the price. You, you can join that group. You can be part of that band of the redeemed. And God invites you. He, he wants you to believe. He commands you. In the Bible, he commands you. He doesn't say, well, you know, do this if you, you, know, you think it's the best thing. He commands you. He says, believe. And he pleads with you. He says, now, now why won't you believe in the Lord Jesus? You have everything to gain. There is a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. And even though, even though you've sinned, you think, well, I, I'm, just, I'm just too bad. You, look, you have, no, you have no idea how bad you are. You have no idea how, how wicked you are. You have no idea about the badness of your heart and your soul and the depth to which you've really sunk in sin. God knows, and still, he wants to save you. Because... Because Jesus died for sinners just like you. And if you believe, you'll be saved. Isn't that wonderful? It really is wonderful. And it's our prayer that God will save you today. Because the word of God, make no mistake about this, the word of God is coming to you. I mean, you you mustn't look to the left or to the right in front of you or behind you, the, the word of God, the offer of Christ comes to you today. And the command of God is addressed to you today. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, now we praise you and we thank you today for the Lord Jesus. We praise you for our salvation, that you have saved us, and we are as secure as secure can be. We are loved 
more than we could possibly imagine. Jesus has died for us. And we pray, Father, for your blessing on your word so that others might join us and others might find shelter and refuge in the Lord Jesus as we have done. And we will give you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment we'll be uh, celebrating the table in uh, the way we have done in recent times. If you don't have one of these, we can pick one up uh, during the hymn. Um, And then we'll celebrate the table together and remember with thanksgiving what the Lord Jesus has done for us. But first we'll sing the great hymn uh, of Zinzendorf, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness.